thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, last week we saw Paul standing trial before Felix the governor and uh, his accusers, the Jewish religious leaders, had brought accusations against him who ultimately want Paul dead. And there was no evidence presented by the religious leaders against Paul. And so Felix should have released Paul. He should have let him go. But we're told that he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Ultimately, he wants to keep peace. He wants to keep good relations with these religious leaders. And so he keeps Paul bound in prison. And at the end of chapter 24, we're told that Paul was left in that place for two years. So two years now have gone by where Paul has not been convicted of anything. You know, Felix has just left him there. And now there's a new governor that's going to come on the scene. So Felix is now going to be replaced by a man by the name of Festus. Uh, And so Felix, he did the Jews a favor, but he didn't do the ultimately what they wanted. They wanted Paul dead. They don't just want Paul imprisoned. Uh, And actually, Paul writes four of the great books of the Bible called the you know, prison epistles, ultimately, while he's in prison for those two years. So God was using him greatly during that time. And so, you know, these religious leaders, they want Paul dead. They recognize that Felix isn't willing to convict him of, to death, but he was willing to leave him in prison. But now Festus comes on the scene. This new governor's there. And so now there's a new opportunity for the religious leaders to try to get another trial with a new governor. And hopefully for them, they want to see a different result where Paul ultimately is convicted and killed. Here in Acts chapter 25 and 26, we're going to see Paul going on trial again. And a lot of what we're going to see in these two chapters is something that we've already seen with Paul on trial before. We've already seen with Paul sharing his testimony before. And so there's going to be some things that I'm just going to briefly, you know, touch on, go over quickly. What we're really going to focus on are there's two individuals that Paul's going to be sharing his testimony, sharing the gospel with. And it's the response of these two individuals that we're really going to focus on this morning because all of us hopefully are sharing our testimony, sharing the gospel with people. And these two responses are the two most common responses that we get from people. And I think there's a lot we can learn, not only from the response, but the response that Paul gives to those who do this. And so let's start off here seeing what happens again as Paul, he's been in prison now for two years and Festus now comes on the scene, chapter 25, starting verse 1, says this. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you come down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. 
So we have the new governor, Festus, come on the scene. He replaces Felix. And while he is in Jerusalem, remember he rules from Caesarea, he comes down to Jerusalem and the religious leaders recognize the new governors here and they come and they make a a petition to Festus. They say, you know what, can you send Paul to Jerusalem. Have his trial here because we want to ambush and kill him. Uh, and so, you know, Festus says, no, you know, I'm going to deal with Paul in Caesarea. If you guys want to come and accuse him there, then you're more than welcome to do that. And so these are the circumstances which lead to another trial for Paul. Let's see what happens in verse six. And when he had remained among them, More than ten days he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. So the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death. I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So once again, the Jews bring accusation against Paul. And just like we saw before, they have no evidence to back up these accusations. They have no proof because Paul was innocent. And so Paul, in his defense, you know, he just shares the same thing, that there's no evidence to back any of these things up. Now, Festus, just like Felix, he should have recognized you're innocent. There, there's no proof. There's no things that we can say that you're guilty of because of evidence against you. And so he should have let Paul go. But just like Felix, we're told Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. And so he says, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem in order for me to try you there? Now, remember, the whole point of going to Jerusalem is that these Jews were waiting to kill Paul on the journey. So Paul says, no. I want to be judged by Caesar, so I appeal to Caesar. Now, it's important to note that it was the right of every Roman citizen to have their case ultimately heard by Caesar if things didn't go well in the lower courts or they didn't get you know, the response or, or the, the treatment that they thought they deserved. It's kind of like in our court system, we have the Supreme Court. So you start in the lower courts and you know, things don't work out quite right. So you can say, you know what, I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Now, once the Supreme Court makes a decision, that's the final decision. There's no court higher than that. And in the same regard in Rome, Caesar was it. You appeal to Caesar, whatever he declares, whether you're innocent or guilty, that's what's going to happen to you. But it was every Roman citizen's uh, right to say, you know what, I'm going to appeal to Caesar and I'm going to have my case heard by Caesar. And so that is what Paul does here. Now, it seems that either through the knowledge of the Holy Spirit or his own common sense, Paul recognized going to Jerusalem is a trap. Going to Jerusalem is something that's going to kill me because, you know, it wouldn't take much common sense because we know that two years ago that he found out, hey, there's a plot. Forty guys took this vow to kill me. Uh, And so he recognizes, you know what, if I go to Jerusalem, they're just going to try to kill me again. So Festus says, all right, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. That is your right as a Roman. Uh, And so let's see what happens next. Verse 13. 
And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against them. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accusers meet the accuser face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood by, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters." But when Paul um, appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. We're told that two new people come on the scene, King Agrippa and Bernice. They come to Caesarea. They come to greet Festus. Ultimately, this new governor is in town and, you know, Agrippa is king over that region. And so he wants to greet this new Roman governor. Now, throughout the New Testament, we keep hearing about kings in Israel this time with the name Herod or Herod Agrippa or Herod something and recognize it's all stemming from Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the first Herod and these are all people people who were related to him that are ultimately taking his name uh, and, you know, King Herod the Great, and then there's these different Herods that follow him. Herod the Great is the one who uh, tried to kill Jesus as a baby by having all those baby boys under two massacred. Then there was the next, his son, who killed John the Baptist, and then there was his son who had James killed, and now we have Herod Agrippa, uh, and so he's descended from a pretty wicked group of men, and we're told that he's with a woman named Bernice. Now, there's something interesting that history tells us about Bernice. Bernice is Herod Agrippa's sister, but unfortunately, they were in an incestuous relationship. Uh, And so Herod has his own sin problems there. So Herod Agrippa ruled this small kingdom of the Roman Empire to the northeast of where Festus is. And we're told that he was an expert in Jewish customs and religious matters. And this is why ultimately Festus is very interested in King Agrippa because he's like, you know what? I got a problem. You know, I've just arrived here. I've just been given this governorship and I don't really understand Jewish customs. I don't really understand the Jewish religion. And here comes a guy who's an expert in these things, who rules over these areas. And notice what Festus says. You know, he says, In verse 19, the Jews had some questions about Paul, about their own religion, and about Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive, and because I was uncertain of such questions. So he's sitting there trying to judge what Paul's guilty of, but he doesn't know what they're talking about. Who is this Jesus? Well, what is this dying and rising from the dead? And so he's hoping that, you know, uh, Herod Agrippa here can give him some insight, some advice. And so um, he brings this to Herod, hoping for that. And Herod says, you know what? I would like to hear Paul myself. And he says, all right, fine. Come tomorrow and you shall hear Paul. So let's see what happens now that Paul has a new audience. Verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commander and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, 
You see this man whom, about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he's not fit to live any longer. But when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Well, here we're told the the main reason that Festus wants King Herod there, because Festus doesn't know, like, what am I going to write to Caesar? I'm sending Paul to Caesar, you know, but, you know, he's going to go to the highest court of the land, and Caesar's going to be like, well, what's he accused of? You know, what is it that I'm uh, presiding over? And he's like, I don't even know what to write. I don't even know what accusation. So please, King Herod, can, can you listen to what's going on here and help me articulate some kind of, you know, letter to Caesar so that that I can say what Paul is guilty of because he's kind of clueless. He's like, he's not guilty of anything deserving of death, but yet these Jews want him dead. And so I got to kind of figure out what's going on here. So now Paul is going to get hit to present his case before both Festus and King Agrippa. Let's see what happens now, starting in Acts 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul starts off saying, you know what, he's happy once again to get to share about his life, about you know these accusations. This is the fifth time that Paul has to do this, and you might think he's getting upset, and like, you know, why do I have to keep doing this? But Paul sees, I think, a very different perspective of, I got another person, or two people, uh, that you know, are now going to hear my testimony, hear the gospel, get to share this with them. And so Paul sees this as an opportunity, not as this tedious thing of, I've told Felix, and I told this person, now i got to tell you guys, come on, who's going to listen? Hey, he gets another opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, and notice that one of the people he's sharing with is a king. And I want you to note the significance of that is because, remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul gets converted, and Jesus tells him something about his ministry. It says this in 9.15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Well, we know that Paul's already been out to the Gentiles and proclaiming the gospel to them. He has opportunities to share with the Jews, but guess what? Now a king is standing before him, and he's going to share the gospel with a king. And so what a wonderful thing that he is accomplishing what God said that he would ultimately accomplish. Well, now, going back to chapter 22, we see that Paul has already shared his testimony in detail. And there's four main things that Paul shares in his testimony then that he's going to share in his testimony now. And I just want to remind you of these four points. We're not going to look at what Paul says in detail since we've already done that. But I just want to reiterate these things for us as we think about our own testimonies and what we're going to share with people. We see, once again, Paul starts off with what your life was like before you received Christ. Second, how you realize you need to receive Christ. Third, how you received Christ and became a Christian. And fourth, how Christ changed you and how he's using you. 
And Paul starts off, like he did before, with what he was like before receiving Christ. As he has this new audience of Festus and uh, King Agrippa and Claudius. He's now going to start sharing that in verse 4. Let's see what he says. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to obtain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews." Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So we've looked at already, you know, kind of the details of what Paul's life was like when he shared his testimony before, so we don't need to get into a lot of details. But I do want us to note something in verse 6 where he shares he's ultimately being accused of this. Notice what he says. And now I stand and am judged for the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise the twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to obtain for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. The promise that Paul is referring to is a promise that the Messiah would come and die on the cross and rise again from the dead to deal with people's sin and ultimately to make it possible for others to be risen and live together with God in heaven. Now, it seems that King Herod did not believe in the resurrection, because notice the question that Paul posed to him. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Now, remember, King Herod is an expert in Jewish religion and Jewish customs, so he would have known the Old Testament. He would have known that it's full of miracles, full of God doing miraculous things. And so Paul's you know, kind of appealing to his logic, saying, okay, if you believe the Old Testament and all that God did, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You know, I think this is a great question by Paul, and one that every believer really needs to think through and think about why should it be thought incredible that God would raise the dead you know in Genesis we're told that God created everything out of nothing and if we believe that then why would anything else be difficult why would it be hard to believe that God could raise someone from the dead you know I think a question that we need to ask ourselves as Christians is why should it be thought incredible that God can do anything Why should we think it's incredible that God would be able to accomplish something miraculous, something difficult, something that maybe we even think is impossible? Because God has the power to do anything. You know, I think sadly, oftentimes, we put our limitations on God. You know, I know I have been guilty of this many times in my Christian life. You know, I see something that I can't do. I'm limited in accomplishing it. And so I conclude, oh God, you must not be able to do it either. 
I remember in Scotland, you know, we, we lived off of support from America. I was there for 11 years. And the first couple years that I was there, I kept coming to the same kind of, oh, man, I need another $1,000 to support this month. Or maybe it was 2000 or maybe it was this. And I never knew it was coming. And there was times like, oh, I can't get that money. I, I, there's no way I can do this. Lord, how are you going to be able to do this? Because I can't, so surely you can't. And then God would provide. And each time he would provide, he would remind me, why do you put your limitations on me? I'm not limited like you are. God is all-powerful, we're not. He's all-knowing, we're not. He has every resource available to him, we don't. So be very careful not to limit God with your limitations. So Paul starts off sharing what his life was like before he received Christ. In the midst of that, he shares one of the main charges against him. Ultimately, I'm being charged for this belief in Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he makes it possible for others who believe in him to go to heaven. Well, now Paul's going to share about how he realized he needed to receive Christ and how he received Christ and became a Christian. Verse 12. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And we all had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is exactly what Paul shares back in chapter 22 when he's sharing about his conversion experience. But he gives us a little detail that he didn't give back then. And this detail is the fact that while he had that time where Jesus literally audibly spoke to him, Jesus said, you're going to the Gentiles. Back in chapter 22, he doesn't give us that insight. And so right away, the first time he has this encounter and gets saved, he's told of a ministry to go to the Gentiles and deliver them from darkness to light. Well, now Paul's going to share how Christ changed him and how he used him. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying, No other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer." that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul shares, you know what, I wasn't obedient right away because God sent me to the Gentiles and the first people I went to were the Jews. But then Paul finishes saying, you know what, once again, here's the real reason I'm being accused, verse 21. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Paul's saying, you know, ultimately it's because I teach that Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's why they're coming against me. That's why they want me dead. That's the heart of the issue here. They might be throwing out different accusations, but at the bottom line, the reason they want me dead is because I proclaim that it's only through Jesus Christ that one can be saved. And now we get to the point where I really want us to focus this morning because Paul has shared this testimony which we've just highlighted because we looked at it before. But now we're going to see two responses to this. We're going to see a response from Festus. We're going to see a response from King Agrippa. And I want us to really note these responses because there's, I think, some important things that we can learn. Let's see how Festus responds. He hears Paul's testimony. He hears all that God has done. Verses 24 through 26, let's see how he responds. It says this. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Festus responds to Paul's testimony to the gospel by saying, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. Ultimately, what Festus is saying, you're crazy, Paul, to believe that Jesus dies for our sins and that he's the one who brings us to God and that we can be raised and go to heaven with him. You know, you're crazy, Paul, to buy into that stuff. You know, when we share our testimony or the gospel, this is a very common response we get from people. Oh, you're crazy. You're just loony to to believe that kind of stuff. Believe in God, believe in Jesus dying for your cross, believing that he'll bring you to heaven. But something important to understand that we're told in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. To people who are perishing, to those who don't want to believe in Jesus, who haven't accepted Jesus, the Bible says very much the message of the cross, the message of what Jesus has done, is foolishness to them. Now to those who are being saved, to those who have accepted, we realize it's the power of God to salvation. But for the world who's lost, when they look at it, the Bible clearly says, they see it as foolishness. Now, here's something else I want you to note, because, you know, we're told that we're so foolish by the world. Oh, you're so foolish to believe in God, so foolish to believe in Jesus. But notice what Psalm 14.1 tells us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The world says we're the fools for believing in God. God says, no, they're the fools for not believing in him. God says the only real foolish people are the people who believe there is no God, who reject Jesus, who reject the gospel. A genius, a Boy Scout, and a pastor were flying in a three-passenger plane. The pilot said, it's not looking good, guys. Our our engines are going down, and the plane is going down, and there is a problem. We only have three parachutes, and I'm taking one. And he puts it on, and he jumps out the door. And so now these three guys recognize they have a dilemma. There's two parachutes, and there's three of them. And immediately the genius grabs a bag, calling out, Sorry guys, I have to take this because I'm the smartest man in the world, as he jumps out the plane. And now there's only one. And, you know, the pastor says to, you know, this Boy Scout, You know what, I've lived a good life. I know where I'm headed. I believe in Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. So you go ahead and you take the final parachute. 
The Boy Scout says, that won't be necessary. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) A lot of people think they're so smart, but in all reality, they've grabbed onto the wrong thing. And because of that, they're plummeting to their death. They're headed straight to hell. People think, oh, I'm going to hold on to this belief or this philosophy, but there's only one true one that will save them, and that is Jesus Christ. And so you're not smart for rejecting Jesus. You're foolish. You're rejecting the only thing, the only one who can save you from your sin, who can save you from hell. You know, Jesus said this himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. Jesus makes it clear. Some people in the world think, oh, you know, Christianity is so narrow, and they, they only think there's only one way to heaven. Well, that's because that's God says there's only one way. There's not many roads, not many paths. There's one path that leads to God, and that is through accepting Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. So Festus says, Paul... <laughs> You're crazy. You're mad to believe in this stuff. Well, notice how Paul responds in verse 25. I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Festus says, Paul, you're mad. Paul says, no, I'm not. I'm not mad for believing these things. Actually, I speak words of truth and words of reason. Now, I want you to note this. Notice how Paul viewed the gospel message. He recognized two important realities about it. It's true and it's reasonable. I think many Christians don't even believe that, don't even accept that. It's true and reasonable. It's kind of like, well, it's just kind of this blind faith that I have in something. No, Paul realized the gospel message, it's true and it's reasonable. This is not some fictitious story. This is something that truly happened. We have good reason to believe it. There's plenty of evidence to back it up. It can be verified. It can be proven. So Paul says to Festus, these things, speaking of what Jesus did, they weren't done in a corner. Hey, I'm speaking to you, King Agrippa, you know this is true. You know that these things weren't done in a corner. You know that Jesus appeared alive to over 500 people at once. You have heard these things. You have recognized this stuff. You know that it's provable. So I'm speaking of something that is true. You know, we have good reason to believe the gospel. We have evidence to back it up. And I think a lot of Christians get this mindset of when they hear the world say, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're stupid, you're foolish for buying into it. We kind of accept that. Of like, maybe we are. Maybe we're just silly. Maybe we're foolish. And a lot of it is they just don't know the evidence that we have, the truth that we have, the reason that we have to back it up. But we do. The first response to Paul's testimony in the gospel from Festus is a very common one. You're crazy. You're crazy, Paul. And Paul's quick to say, no, I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. I actually speak words of truth and reason. Now, the response that I think is even sadder than Festus, Festus is a common response that we have from the world, but notice how King Agrippa responds here in verses 27 and 28. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul knows that King Agrippa, he's an expert in the Old Testament. He says, you know what, I know you know what the, the, the prophets said. They, they prophesied of Jesus. They prophesied of these things. I know you know that this was being told. And as he's listening to this, he says, Paul, you almost persuade me 
to become a Christian. I want you to think about that. This is really the saddest response to the gospel. I understand what you're saying. It's quite persuasive. You've really brought a great argument and I can totally get it and I realize what's being told. You almost persuade me, but I'm still going to reject it. You almost persuade me, but I'm not going to believe it. You know, in sporting events, we often use the word almost in a positive way, like, oh, that swimmer almost beat Michael Phelps, and he's so fast, and what an amazing thing, or, or that sprinter almost beat Usain Bolt, and we say, like, oh, look at how close they were against the best, almost in like this, this positive reference or this positive way. But the gospel is not in a sporting event. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal damnation. You know, we wouldn't use the word almost in a positive way if we were saying, you know what, the person was almost pardoned, but they were executed. We wouldn't say, you know what, the person almost was rescued from that burning fire, but they burned to death. That term almost would have associated with it this horrible reality that they were so close to being rescued, but yet they died. And that's what we see here with The word almost with King Agrippa. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost being a Christian means you almost have eternal life, but you don't. You almost are forgiven of your sins, but you're not. You're almost delivered from the judgment of hell, but you're not. Almost isn't good enough. Either you believe in Jesus or you don't. Either you're saved or you're not. There's no middle ground. It can't be almost. It has to be all. You know, I wonder what stopped King Agrippa from becoming a Christian. You almost persuaded me. What is it that that kept him from taking that final step and placing his belief in Christ? Now, we're not given the reason. But I think there's some likely possibilities that could have been there for King Agrippa. It's definitely something that we see a lot with people today. I think one possible reason was his sinful, incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. Perhaps he realizes, you know what, if I accept Christ, if I believe in the gospel message, I have to end the sinful relationship with my sister. And maybe he wasn't willing to do that. Maybe he wasn't ready to do that. He's like, you know what, I'm not ready to to give this up, and so I'm not going to receive Christ. This is one of the biggest reasons why we see people who are almost persuaded, but they say, you know what, I'm not going to accept the gospel because there's some sin, and it's often a sinful relationship, but they say, I'm not willing to give this up. I'm not willing to let this go, and so therefore I'm not willing to accept Christ because I know he tells me I need to give it up if I do Come and follow him. You know, another possible reason Herod didn't accept the gospel is because of fear of Festus, who just called Paul mad. Oh, if I accept the gospel, you know, what is this governor of Rome going to think of me? He's going to think I'm mad. He's going to think I'm crazy. And this is another thing that we see oftentimes with people of, you know, if I accept Jesus, what's the, my friends or my family or, or my coworkers, what are they going to think about me? Some Jesus freak follower person, you know what I mean? What's going to be their thought? I'm just kind of this stupid Christian who buys into this fairy tale religion. I mean, that's kind of what the world portrays. And oftentimes people are scared to be associated with that. Perhaps he thought, you know what, I can't become a Christian because I don't want to be thought that I'm mad, that I'm crazy. Another possible reason Herod didn't accept the gospel is because of Paul's circumstance. Here's a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, and he's in prison. He's been in prison for two years, and he's done nothing wrong. If I accept Jesus, might this be my fate? 
If I follow Jesus, maybe I'm going to have to suffer and go through hardship and go through difficulty. And yeah, I don't want that. And that's another thing that we often see from people is like, you know, if I, if I follow Jesus, what, that's, what is that going to do to my life? Is it going to ruin my life? Is it going to ruin my fun? But the truth is, accepting the gospel doesn't ruin your life. It gives you abundant life. It gives you a life full of meaning. It gives you a life full of purpose, full of peace. We don't know for sure what reason kept Agrippa from accepting the gospel, but it's still a sad statement. You almost persuade me, Paul, but I'm still lost, but I'm still not going to accept Jesus. Now, for those of you who have accepted Christ, we're not in the state of almost being persuaded by the gospel. We've been fully persuaded. We've accepted it. But you know what? I find that in our Christian life, we still sometimes go back to this almost mentality when it comes to living for God. Oh, we've accepted him. We've accepted that he died on the cross. We we are now saved. But when it comes to living for him, when it comes to denying the sin in our life, it's kind of this almost mentality instead of a, a full desire to be sold out for him. God wants us sold out to give our lives completely to him. And sometimes it's, yeah, I'll I'll almost sell out for you, Lord. I'll almost be sold out for you. You know, there'll be times that I live for you and times that I live for myself. And, you know, so it'll almost be there. And I think the same reasons that King Herod was almost persuaded about the gospel are the same reasons that we're only willing to almost give our complete life to following the Lord. The biggest reason is sin. I still want to hold on to it. I'll almost deny, repent, live for you, but you know what? There's these sins in my life that I I enjoy, that I want to continue to pursue. And so, you know, here I'll live for you, but I'm not going to give this up. In this area, I'll follow you, but but I'm not going to give this up. So it's just going to be almost, or maybe even most of the way, but I'm not willing to give up this sin that I'm holding on to. Sadly, I've seen many Christians in this area, and once again, one of the biggest ones is a sinful relationship. They're with someone that they think they love and this person's either a non-Christian or this person is not good for their relationship with God and they just continue to pursue and follow that and they're not willing to give it up. Or we almost give our whole life, but we're fearful of what people might think if we do. I mean, what are people going to think of me if I'm just sold out completely for Jesus and just living for him in every way, shape, and form? I mean, if I'm crazy and like I'm willing to move to another place and, and be a missionary or just, you know, share the gospel with strangers or, or do things that are just seen as kind of, you know, extreme in our culture. Well, what are they going to feel about me? What are they going to think about me? What's their opinion of me going to be? Ultimately, as Christians, there's only one opinion we should be concerned with. And that's definitely not the opinion of the world. It's the opinion of God. If we're really concerned about his opinion, then we're going to be sold out because we know that's what he wants. If we're concerned about his opinion, then it's like, Lord, I'm going to live for you because I know you want me to live for you, regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what anyone else says, regardless of what they feel about me or what they call me. That's not important to me compared to what your opinion is. And since your opinion should be the highest thing that I value, I'm going to follow that and not what this world says. Others only almost give their whole life to the Lord because they're afraid of persecution, afraid of hardships. Man, if I'm going and sharing the gospel, what's going to happen? How are they going to respond? If I'm living for Jesus, you know, what, what if these things take place? Or what if I'm rejected by these? And, and we have this fear. 
Fear of persecution, fear of rejection that often keeps us from living the way that God wants us to. Almost accepting the gospel and almost giving God your whole life are such sad things. And it's something that God clearly doesn't want. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, writes certain things to different churches. Some of them are positive, some of them are negative, some of them are both. But he says something in Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Laodicea that I want to remind you of if you've never heard it. Then it'll be anew. Verse 15, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These are some strong words from Jesus. You know what? I'd rather you be cold or hot. What I don't want is lukewarm. What I don't want is that almost Christian mentality of, well, I'll kind of live for you and live for the world at the same time. I'll have one foot in Christianity, one foot in indulging my own pleasures. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you lukewarm. I want you hot. I want you living for me. I want you on fire for me. I think too many of us have times in our life as Christians where we're in that lukewarm state. And Jesus definitely does not want that from us. You know what? And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't almost become a man? That he didn't almost give his life? That he didn't almost die on the cross for our sins? That he didn't almost rise from the dead? That he didn't almost forgive you of your sins? Almost love you? He didn't almost do those things. He completely did those things for us. And he's asking in response to me, sacrificing all for you, I want you in return to sacrifice all for me. Well, let's look at how Paul responds to King Herod's statements and this almost persuaded to receive the gospel, verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Here Paul reveals his heart. Yeah, I'm glad that you're getting closer but I don't want you just almost, I want you all together like I am, completely you know, believing and following Jesus. That's my heart, that people would come to that place not to just get saved, but as I am someone who is just following Jesus with their complete life. You know what, that should be our desire. When we share our testimony, when we share the gospel, our heart's desire is that people would accept it, hopefully. But not just accept it, but then become believers who actually live for Jesus. You know, sadly, not everyone is going to accept the gospel. We're going to have the Festuses who think we're crazy. We're going to have the Herods who, you know, are almost there. But even though we come to those people who reject or get close but don't get all the way, we need to still recognize our hearts should be we want to see people get saved. And the reason that should be our heart is because that's the heart of God. Second Peter 3 9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that should be the heart that we have as well. Well, Festus wanted King Herod to listen to Paul so we could give him some kind of insights as to what to write to Caesar. And now they've listened to this and Festus thinks Paul's crazy and, and King you know, Herod is almost persuaded, but he's not. And now we're going to see them talk among themselves and finish this chapter. What does it say in verse 30? 
When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing to deserve, deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Festus and King Herod, after all this, they get together to talk about things. And notice one of the things that we're told Herod says to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I think this is such a sad statement coming from you know, King Agrippa because he missed something so important. Oh man, Paul, if he didn't appeal to Caesar, he could have been set free. Well, you know what, King Agrippa? If you wouldn't have rejected Jesus, you could have been set free from your sin. You could have been having eternal life right now, but yet you weren't willing to accept Christ. He kind of missed the whole point. As we share the gospel with people around us, we're going to see these two responses. You're crazy. I'm almost there. And I want to encourage you because I know it can be difficult, especially when you get the crazy comments that we kind of just want to give up. Yeah, it's not worth it anymore. I'm just going to stop. And, oh, they're so close, but they're still not there. And I put all this time and effort into these people. And it's easy for us to just get to this point where it's like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to share the gospel anymore. I'm tired of being rejected and being called names and people getting close but not making a decision for Christ. And, you know, once again, as I've shared before, it's not our responsibility to cause some kind of response. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. How people respond is between them and God. It's not us. We can't force them. We can't force them to think that, you know, we're not crazy, but that we speak truth and we speak, you know, things that are reasonable. We can't force that upon them. We can't force them to accept it, even if they get real close. That's not on us. Our responsibility is to share the gospel, and we leave it with them to make a choice as to what they're going to do with that. But I encourage you, don't Get you know, to a place where you stop. Paul didn't stop. He continues on, and he's a great example for us. You know, I just want to close in prayer, just being quiet before the Lord. And if you're at a point right now where you think, you know what, I fit in that almost category. I've been almost living my life for God for a while. There's areas that I'm doing in it, but there's other areas where I'm just, you know, willfully not giving this to the Lord or not giving that to the Lord or I'm not giving up this sin or that sin. And I just want to encourage you, let's just take some quiet time just between you and God. If you're in that state where you're like, Lord, I'm just almost living for you, but not like I should. First, ask for forgiveness. And second, ask that God would change you, help you to make him the complete priority of your life. So let's just take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord and deal with things if we need to.